The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the third chapter. Matthew's Gospel starts with obviously chapters one and two, which are the genealogy and the infancy narrative in Matthew's Gospel. Now we get to adult ministries beginning with John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him in all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear, clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. You're going to burn with unquenchable fire, people. There's the good news. I just always kind of like when the gospel ends with something really threatening like that, and then we get to say the good news. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and has uh, given to him a spirit of what? Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and respect of the Lord, spirit of joy in the Lord's presence. Uh, we say that prayer for every baptism we do. We say it individually for every child who is confirmed into adulthood at this congregation. Uh, of the various prayers in our liturgy, it's one of the few that I have memorized, and it's not because I say it you know, 20 or 30 or 40 times a year, depending on the year. The reason I have it memorized is because I think it really is almost a perfect prayer. It's not one you can say for yourself. It's one you say for someone else. And I want you to think about it a little bit. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you, whoever you might pray it for, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. So it's a series of dyads. Wisdom, biblically, is the capacity to choose the best course in any given moment. It's, it's something about being in the moment. Understanding is a lifetime of perception, of understanding yourself and others. And so you pray for a spirit of wisdom, the capacity to understand things in the moment, and understanding, the ability to um, uh, perceive correctly over time. Counsel and might, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, so uh, counsel is the capacity to, to advise, 
in a way that enlightens others and uh, hopefully brings peace instead of conflict and division. And yet one also prays for a spirit of might for people that in addition to having counsel, they would in a sense have the, the mental fortitude to persist in something that is routinely rejected in our world. In other words, a counsel that leads not to war, but to peace, not to division, but to reconciliation. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge. Knowledge scripturally is like one of the greatest of gifts. The capacity to know things is amazing, but of course when one is gifted with it, the great temptation is what? Is arrogance because you know so much. So a spirit of knowledge and respect for the Lord, in other words, one does not become so full of oneself that you aren't still humble in the presence of God is a gift. And then the final one isn't a dyad. The final one is in a spirit of joy in God's presence. That there is something when those others exist that change an individual's character so that regardless of life's circumstances, be they difficult and empty or filled and, and flowing, that, that there is a exuberance and hopefulness characterized by joy that becomes the essence of that person. It wouldn't be a bad prayer for you to learn. Uh, I think in particular because uh, if you've got a little drive time, if you've got a little down time, if you've got a little thinking time, there's always someone who either is a blessing to you or someone who frustrates you deeply for whom you could say this prayer. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and respect for the Lord, a spirit of joy in your presence. It's really an awesome prayer. New thought. What's your emotional reaction to the word wilderness? Is the wilderness a good thing or a bad thing when you hear it? Wilderness could be a dangerous, horrible place filled with snakes and wolves that are going to eat you alive, uh, um, uh, wild, raging waters that could sink you, or if nothing else, if you're in northern Minnesota at about 10 o'clock at night, uh, you could literally be carried off by the mosquitoes uh, that are swarming around you. Although that actually is looking pretty good as we go into the, <laughs> into the middle of the winter here. So wilderness for some people is a daunting, intimidating place that they don't want to be. For other people, wilderness is exactly where they want to be. Uh, it's a place where you can paddle someplace so distant that all you can hear at night are, are the loons maybe, uh, maybe a coyote in the distance. Uh, maybe the wilderness is a place where at 6.05 uh, in the morning on the first day of, of deer season, you're just sitting there in your stand and you see this 10-point buck off in the distance. The wilderness is a place that you want to be in a place of abundance and, and of uh, apt challenge. So again, for you, which is it? Is the wilderness a good place or a bad place? Scripturally, uh, you hear a lot of stories about wilderness. Uh, who spends time in the wilderness? Give me, th give me three examples of people in the wilderness in Scripture. Go. 
John the Baptist? Jesus? Jesus? Moses. Moses. And like the whole people of Israel hanging out. Okay, did really well. Uh, uh, another classic one is the prophet Elijah spends 40 days wandering around in the wilderness before he encounters the still, small voice of God. The wilderness in Scripture is, is, is not a good or a bad place, but it is a place where people's defenses tend to get stripped away and where, as a result, uh, you are most likely to have an honest encounter with the presence of God because your defenses have been stripped away, and it's just you and God. That doesn't happen immediately. It took the children of Israel 40 years to get that, to that point. It took Elijah 40 days to get that point. Uh, Jesus fasts for 40 days in the wilderness to, in a sense, actually be ready uh, to face the challenges of temptation uh, from the devil. The wilderness is a place where you encounter the presence and power of God. John, Mark's gospel begins its, its, its uh, core part in chapter 3 by saying uh, that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea. That tells us two, I think, kind of interesting things about John. Uh, he appears in the wilderness and people go to him. There was something about John uh, which was already to the point where his defenses had been stripped away. He was already down to the essentials of what an encounter of God should be about, and, and people are drawn to that. They come to him in the wilderness. And it's the wilderness of Judea, and that's significant because Jesus will spend almost his whole adult ministry not in Judea, which is in, in the south near Jerusalem. Jesus will spend almost all of it in Galilee. The true forerunner of Jesus is geographically ahead of him. He's already in the south, which is where Jesus will come and ultimately die. And John the Baptist, in a sense, skips the whole prelude part of teaching and healing and connecting people and just goes straight to challenging uh, the political and, and religious corruption and powers of Judea and Jerusalem, for which he will lose his head pretty quickly to King Herod, but in the meantime, he proclaims a new path, a new world that's about to dawn on the world. One of the little things, though, about John the Baptist, if you could have an imaginary line here between past and future, is that he, he does straddle them. There is something about him that is already in the future, but there's something about him that lies in the past. And the part of him that lies in the past is he comes out of part of the, the prophetic stream in the Bible that, that uh, calls people to accountability, which is a good thing, but, but then also says uh, if you're called to account and you don't immediately kind of snap out of it, then you're going to burn like chaff in the unquenchable fire. In other words, ours is ultimately a God of accountability and judgment. And that's who, Jesus, that's who John expects Jesus to be. When he says that line at the end, they're going to burn an unquenchable fire, he's thinking that's the Messiah. And so when we get to the Epiphany season, we're going to have one of those readings also about John the Baptist where he sends messengers to, to, to Jesus asking, are you really the Messiah? Because Jesus is fully planted in the future. Jesus understands that ours is a God who goes and eats and drinks with sinners and tax collectors, who prays for his enemies, 
and forgives them from the cross. Ours actually is not a God of accountability. Uh, the whole point of the cross is that ours is a God of amazing, unconditional love and grace and persistence with those of us who have gotten lost along the way. John the Baptist, he gets so much of it, but he doesn't quite get it all. It is Jesus who will lead us into the future. Another new thought. If you cut down a cedar tree and wait a year or two, what's going to come sprouting out of that stump? Another cedar tree, right? Not all trees do that, but cedars are an example of ones that do. There were a lot of cedars in the Middle East when the scriptures were written. The Isaiah passage that we have today, Isaiah is interesting in that Isaiah is way before John the Baptist, but in a sense, Isaiah is where Jesus is going to get eventually as well. Isaiah is filled with these visions of a world uh, that does not have to be locked in a cycle of, of mistakes and vengeance and retribution, but in fact a cycle that can be broken and where light can break into our darkness. And, and, and that's why Jesus quotes it more than any other prophet. It's why the evangelists quote it more than any other as they understand Jesus' ministry. But uh, in today's reading, we had this interesting thing about the stump of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David, that something, even though that Davidic line kind of uh, dies off in, in, in Jewish history, that Jesus, who is a part of it, will bring something new that comes out of it. So, just a little personal history on my part. Uh, so you, you go to college, and then if you want to be a pastor, you go to uh, a type of graduate school called seminary. And I fell in love with some woman who was going to go to like one of those snotty Ivy League schools called Princeton Theological Seminary. That would be my wife, Barb, who's just like hanging out in the corner over there. Sorry, Barb. You're, you love me, right? So I, I spent two years. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Where is this going? Uh, so I went to seminary for two years at Princeton Theological Seminary, a wonderful Ivy League institution, uh, 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 great, challenging uh, intellectual stuff. But I didn't get my degree from there. Uh, then, back in the day, at that point, you, if you were going to be a Lutheran pastor, you had to go to a Lutheran seminary. So I spent one year academically and one year in internship at uh, the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, uh, which is our, our, I think, most urban and multicultural of seminaries, but I didn't get my degree from there either. Um, I got my degree from a seminary that does not even exist anymore, and I knew that was going to happen, but I got it from there on purpose. So my degree came from Christ Seminary Seminex, which is the the seminary that left the Missouri Synod part of Lutheranism in the 1970s and, and moved their faculty and resources to where LSDC is in Chicago uh, and then functioned from there until the ELCA was formed. The, the, reason, those, the, the reason that faculty left uh, St. Louis was the dispute in the Missouri Synod at the time uh, over a literal or contextual approach to scripture. Uh, is scripture kind of locked into words on a page, or can the spirit move us in our reading of it? And the, the application issue at the time was, can, can women uh, have a leadership role in the church or not? Can they, can they be elected to be a part of a council? Can they dare to be 
uh, a pastor in a congregation. And that particular group said, yes, they can be. Uh, the Missouri Synod, if you know the Missouri Synod a little bit, they kind of disagreed with that. And, and so the faculty moved. Uh, so given the choice of where I could get my degree from, and it could have been from any of those institutions, I wanted it to be to the one that resonated uh, with, with uh, a struggle that I had been through, which is to, to understand scripture contextually and, and to recognize the, um, maybe not the same gifts that men or women or anybody brings to ministry, but uh, how appropriate and complementary they are. Uh, the reason I say all of that is what was the symbol for Christ Seminary Seminex? It was a stump with a little shoot growing out of it that even out of change or in a sense death, something new can grow and evolve. Sounds kind of idealistic, right? Does that actually happen? And you tend to ask that, I think, more and more in life, particularly uh, when there is darkness, particularly when there are dead ends, and I think particularly when, when either they are long and persistent and do not ever seem to go away, or when they shockingly come upon you and you are not at all prepared for them. But then I think it's always important to hear how often it happens that light dawns in the darkness and that a shoot does in fact grow up out of a stump. So uh, for whatever reason, I decided to go with uh, our local interfaith group uh, to the Milwaukee Interfaith uh, Annual kind of awards banquet this past week. And the, the two speakers at that banquet were, and I got a, uh, one was Arnold Michaelis, but I had a look at the other one. Oh yeah, Pardrep Kalaka. And Padrep Kalaka is uh, affiliated with the Sikh Temple in Oak Creek, and, and his father was one of the people who, were, uh, who was killed by a white supremacist who started shooting up the place. How long ago was that? Like seven, eight years ago at this point. Doesn't seem that long ago. Um, uh, uh, Arno Michaelis was a white supremacist who was a part of that same group, though he had left it already at the point that that shooting happened. And, and so these two, Pardrep and, and, and Arno, have started speaking together about how could people from two such amazingly different backgrounds have anything in common, which they now do. And, and so the obvious question that people always ask right off the bat is of Arno, which is like, what caused you to, to stop being a white supremacist? And I, I think what he said was, was interesting in that I think it's really true. It wasn't like he, he didn't have this one moment of uh, illumination where suddenly he changed. It, it happened over a long period of time. And, and, and two things kind of defined his change. One of which was he lived to fight, physically getting in fights with people all the time and, and verbal fights with people all the time. And he didn't care if he won or lost the fight. If he pulled you into a fight, he won. Because he had pulled you down to his level and tactics, verbally or physically. But he kept running into these people, and frequently they turned out to also be people of faith who, who would not fight with him. Uh, uh, Jewish people who would not take his anti-Semitic bait 
uh, people of color who would not be sucked into it. They just wouldn't fight with him, and, and that struck him. And, and, the, and the person who struck him the most, and he was already kind of changing at this point, but he had on his middle finger uh, a tattooed uh, swastika so that when somebody ticked him off, he could show them the swastika with a particular gesture. There aren't any kids here. I could actually have said what the gesture was, but we'll just keep going. Um, so one day he goes to, to order something at McDonald's, and this African-American woman takes his order. And when you think about it, she could have just ignored. She saw that as he handed her his money. Uh, so she could have ignored it. She could have actually been kind of intimidated by it because uh, he's a big guy. Uh, but instead, if she gave him his change back, all she said to him was, when you think about it, an amazingly gracious and hope-filled thing. And all she said was, you're better than that. Didn't put him down. Actually indicated to him that there was something uh, different that he could be. And that one event did not change him, but along with a series of other events, of the refusal to stay in the darkness with him, of the, the refusal uh, to believe that the only way you can respond to evil or put-downs is with more of the same. That refusal over time caused him to be a different person. Which is not to say that there aren't still a lot of white supremacists out there and a lot of other evil and hardship and loss in your lives and the life of the world. But it's Advent. Blue means hope. If you don't believe in Christmas, not the, the innocent little baby, that's, that's the cool part of the story, but I mean, the power of Christmas is that God is with us, does not leave us alone. God longs to teach us a different and better way and to give us the strength to actually do it if, if you don't believe that, keep coming. If you do believe it, say a prayer for anyone who's sitting here right now who maybe can't believe it, but pray for them what? A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and respect for the Lord, most of all, a spirit of joy in God's presence.